Well, hey, RCC family, so good to be with you. I want to welcome those of you who are maybe joining us online or checking this out later. And for those of you who are in the room, maybe you're just checking us out or you've been coming uh, fairly new. And so we've been in this great sermon series where we're looking through the book and life of Jonah. And Anthony, our lead pastor, man, he's just done a phenomenal job of teaching through this series. It's been so good, right? And so today... I have the privilege of walking us through the final chapter of Jonah with each of you, and that's a big deal. And so I don't take it lightly and really could use prayer. So would you pray with me? Um, God, uh, whatever you want to happen right now, I pray that that happens. Uh, God, I pray that um, you'll be the one uh, to teach and instruct, uh, God, through your spirit, through your word, through the ways that uh, you work that only you can do. Uh, God, we just give you this whole thing. God, may the, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, oh God, during this time. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, just for fun, show of hands, how many of you have driven anywhere in the last three months? Now, those of you who have your hands down are lying because you got here somehow, right? I guess you could have walked. Um, okay, keep your hands up, though, if you have ever been angry in the last three months while driving, angry while driving. Okay, all right, welcome to Road Rage Anonymous, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim Cargus, and I have Road Rage. <laughs> but now, for those of you who have had the privilege of being funneled into one lane from two, um, you, you, we've all experienced this pain, right? And so I've noticed that there are two kinds of people in this world when you get funneled into one lane. The one person likes to stay in a single file line on one side and they wait their turn, and the other side, the other person blazes right past everybody to the front of the line and does what they call a zipper merge, right? And these two people, they don't get along. And so the, the person who is a single filer, they think that the zipper merge person is a jerk for running past everyone and then cutting in at the last minute. They, they didn't wait their turn. But the, the zipper merge people think that the single filers are idiots, because they're just sitting there waiting when they could be going faster um, and getting near the front of the line. There was one time where I watched this uh, single filer. Um, he kept like zooming out in front of the, the zipper merge people. Like every time they tried to get past him, he just kept zooming out in front of them so that the, everyone had to be behind him. And so I've, I've got a chart here. of These are the top frustrations for U.S. drivers in 2023. Maybe you can relate to some of those. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that in this study that they did a generational breakdown as well. And so if you're a millennial or if you're Gen Z, it's likely that your top frustration is getting cut off, Okay. Um, Gen X and baby boomers, it's likely that your top frustration is being tailgated. Isn't that fascinating? So millennials and Gen Z, they are coming up behind the um, Gen X and the baby boomers. And the millennials and Gen Z, they don't like when the uh, bo baby boomers and the, and the Gen X, they tell them what to do and they kind of cut them off. And then the, the baby boomers and the Gen X, um, they're usually in positions of leadership 
And so they don't like it when these um, young generations behind them don't do things the way that they think they should be done, the right way to do them. And so they get frustrated when people are tailgating. And so the way that we drive says a little bit about who we are, doesn't it? (laughs) There's some other interesting statistics. According to AAA, 80% of U.S.-based drivers were aggressive behind the wheel at least once during the last year. 80%. And at least 51% of Americans have engaged in purposefully tailgating other drivers. That's 104 million drivers. 47% or 95 million drivers have yelled at another driver. That's pretty high. Um, 45% or 91 million drivers have excessively honked to express their anger. Anyone? I mean, why else do we have the horn, right? Um, 33% or 67 million drivers have made offensive gestures to express. I won't ask for any hands, although I saw a couple already volunteer that that's them today. (laughs) Uh, 24% or 49 million drivers have tried to prevent another car from switching lanes. 12%, 24 million admit to cutting off other cars on purpose. And these last two are just crazy to me. 4% or 8 million drivers have exited their cars in order to verbally or physically confront another driver. I mean, some of you have some real boldness on you that I just don't have. This last one, 3% or 6 million drivers have purposefully hit another car in a fit of rage. 6 million drivers. Okay, now of those 6 million, it is highly unlikely that those people woke up that morning and thought, you know what, today I want to intentionally hit another car. I could use some more drama in my life. I would love for my insurance to go up, right? No, no one says that because anger, it causes us to do things we wouldn't normally do. So anger, it's usually the byproduct of some other underlying issue. Anger is not usually the root cause. It's typically the effect, what is produced from whatever the root is. And so psychologists call this a secondary emotion. That is, it's an emotion that results from a primary emotion. What does that mean? Well, we might become angry when we are afraid or insecure, or jealous, or rejected, or hurt, or abandoned, or disrespected. This is just my list. Um, Humiliated, impatient, anxious, worried. I could go on, but we need to stop at some point. So anger, it has a way also of masking what some of these deeper issues are so that they become kind of hard to determine. And sometimes it takes a little digging to really understand why I'm so angry at this thing. So... Um, recently, I, I did a dumb thing. I know that's shocking. Um, <laughs> I got angry at an internet company. It's not real smart to do that. When we moved from Fremont, we closed out our um, online account with this internet service provider. And this particular company forces you to talk to a customer service specialist in order to close out your account. You can't just do it online, which would be really convenient. So you have to spend at least a half an hour talking to someone who's trying to convince you not to, not to end their service, and they're also trying to upsell you all kinds of things. And so I talked with a guy, let's call him Winston. I said, no, Winston, I don't want mobile phone service added to my account. No, Winston, I don't want to get faster internet for a low price of 12 months. Winston, All I want to do is close my account. So after 45 minutes, 
Winston finally allowed me to close my account. And then a month later, we received a billing statement saying that we owed for a month of internet that we didn't use. We had already moved. So I thought, man, this, this has got to be a mistake. I'm just going to call them. We're going to get this sorted out. They're going to they're gonna refund us or whatever. And so uh, I called the company, and I started talking with this woman. Let's call her Sunshine. <laughs> so Sunshine said that I should have known that the date that our account closed was at the beginning of a new billing cycle, and they don't prorate their services. So even if we only used internet for one day, we would be charged for the entire month. And I told her that Winston never told me this. You'd think we, it, that would have been brought up in the 45-minute phone conversation that we had, because otherwise, we would not have closed our account on that one day. We would have closed it the day before. And so I said, if we knew this, we would have picked an earlier day um, to close our account. But then Sunshine told me that all of this information was on my billing statement. Well, conveniently, I had a billing statement right in front of me. And I looked it up and down and flipped it over and said, uh, Sunshine, it's not anywhere on this. And she said, oh, that's, it's not on that billing statement. It's on a different billing statement from several months ago. And, and I said, well, what is this billing statement? Oh, this billing statement tells you that you're, you're overdue on your payments, and now you're being charged interest. <laughs> and so at this point, uh, I, my voice is starting to raise, and my anger is starting to well up inside of me, and I feel myself getting hot. And Sunshine and I were just going nowhere. And so I asked to speak to a manager. And Sunshine, she transferred me to a no-nonsense woman. We're going to call her Sheila. Um, have any of you ever talked with no-nonsense Sheila? Sheila, um, she started to blame me for the misunderstanding. It was my fault that I didn't ask more questions. It was my fault that the bill was overdue, my fault for not reading um, the previous bills. And so I tried every defense that I could think of, but at this point I'm so angry and Sheila's not going anywhere. So at one point I blurted out, this is not how you do business unless you want to lose all your customers. Like I know anything about running a business. And then I start accusing her and I say, this is your fault. I said, you are the one who should have properly trained your employees. And Sheila probably doesn't even know Winston. And after that, Sheila was silent. And just then, I, I, I had the realization that Sheila is a person. She's not a corporation. And so coming back to my senses, I said, I'm so sorry. Um, I know you're just doing your job. And then I got off the phone and paid our bill. But after that, I told Alyssa that I'm really ashamed at how I handled that. My goal is always to show kindness and grace to everyone, but man, I really failed here. And why was I so angry? I didn't start the conversation angry. What was it that caused so much anger in me? I felt this, this burning, it was rising up inside of me. And so after some reflection, I realized that at the surface, first of all, I was embarrassed. And then second, I felt disrespected. And then a layer deeper than that, I was insecure. But then below everything, I was afraid. So I didn't realize how much I had allowed, allowed fear to really creep into my thoughts. And, and we all have these conversations in our own minds with ourselves, right? We're all telling ourselves different things. And so I was trying to stay really positive in the midst of our whole moving process. Uh, but honestly, there was some fear that I was dealing with deep down. As we were leaving Fremont, I thought, you know what? We, we had a comfortable place 
there. We could have remained comfortable for a while. Um, we had stability, we had security, and moving, it upends all of those things. There's no more security or stability. And I thought, man, what if I mess this up? Or what if others mess something up? Or what if, what if I'm not what they're looking for? What if we end up having to move again? What if we can't afford things? What if, what if we can't find something new? If this falls apart, what if our boy's up on the streets? Like all of these things, you, you start to spiral down in these what ifs. And if we don't take control of our thoughts, then they start to really affect us at a deep emotional level until they kind of spill out in these unexpected ways. And so all of these emotions that I had had they spilled out into my conversation with poor Sunshine and Sheila a few months ago. They, they just had no idea that I was feeling as insecure and worried about the future as I was. And th they didn't know that losing a payment of internet would trigger this insecurity and instability and it brewed kind of this violent storm of rage inside of me. It's a storm of fear. And did my anger in that instance with Sheila and with sunshine, serve me well? Did I do well to be angry about the internet service? And so as we look at Jonah chapter four, there's one thing to keep in mind as we look at this whole thing today. And it's the words of God to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? So we're going to look at um, Jonah chapter four, starting in verse one. So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Jonah chapter four. And you can read along with me while I read um, starting in verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Okay, so let's pause here. Why was Jonah angry? I mean, he's not just angry here. He is exceedingly disgusted and displeased with something. And some translations and commentators talk about this burning anger that Jonah had. It's one that kind of wells up inside of you and it incites these feelings that sort of blind you, cause you to say and do things you wouldn't normally do. Well, if you remember at the end of chapter three, when Anthony took us through that, Nineveh, they miraculously repent. And God relents from the disaster that he had planned. And the book of Jonah could have ended right after chapter three, right? We would have had this nice, complete little story where Jonah runs from God, a fish swallows him, he gets spit out, he goes and preaches, and the people of Nineveh repent, and everybody's happy and the story's over. But instead, we have this gift of chapter four, where we get a little picture of Jonah's heart and the heart of God. So in, instead of the story being over, Jonah is livid. He is furious. God, didn't I tell you this was going to happen? Why do you think I ran away? I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So here he's quoting from Exodus 34, 6. And one verse later in Exodus 34, 7, it says that God is the one who maintains love to thousands. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How many people are in Nineveh? Thousands. So in Jonah's mind, these people in Nineveh, they are wicked, they are filled with rebellion, and they are sin, filled with sin. They don't deserve forgiveness. What do they deserve? 
In Jonah's mind, they deserve death. They should be wiped out. And Jonah can't see past his rage for these people of Nineveh. So he says, you know what? How about this, God? If you're not going to kill them, you might as well just kill me. I don't want any part of a life where you're going to forgive the rebellion of these sinful people. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure a lot of us have dealt with a manipulative person before. And maybe we even come to the sad realization that we are the ones attempting to manipulate others. Now, a a manipulative person, that's a really hard word to say, uh, will offer ultimatums to get what they want. And they they use this uh, strategy where they'll say things like, if you leave me, I'll kill myself. And it's a power play. It's an attempt to gain control over the situation or over the relationship. You're effectively trying to be God in the relationship. And so people either have to choose your way or they have to suffer the consequences. That's manipulation. And so Jonah thinks that he would be doing a better job than God. And if Jonah was God, these Ninevites would already be dead. Because Jonah is not gracious, he is not merciful, he's not slow to anger, he's not abounding in steadfast love, he's not about maintaining love to thousands or forgiving wickedness, rebellion, or sin. Could it be that Jonah thinks it's, maybe it's a Jonah versus the Ninevites thing with God. God, it's either me or them. Who do you care about more? Do you care about one of your own prophets, an Israelite, a man of God? Or do you care about these sinners in this wretched city? Who is more important to you? Do you even care about me, God? And then notice what God says. God doesn't say, oh, Jonah, sweet little Jonah, I didn't know that you wanted to kill yourself. I don't want you to die. You know what? How about this? I'll send a firestorm on Nineveh and we'll just wipe them out and then afterwards we'll get ice cream. Does that sound good, buddy? God doesn't say that. He doesn't even respond to Jonah's death wish here. God responds, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, how's all this burning anger working out for you? Are you sure you're thinking clearly? And Jonah doesn't respond here. Instead, in verse 5, this is what happens. So Jonah just leaves, and then he comes back. In verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth. That's like a little shelter for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Let's stop here for a second. So Jonah, he still maybe thinks that his manipulative tactics are going to work. And so he gives himself kind of this prime viewing spot. He grabs his couch, he grabs his popcorn, and then he he waits for the show to start. And in his mind, he's thinking, I wonder what God's going to do. Is he going to send lightning? Maybe he's going to send an earthquake, maybe like a giant comet to just smash this city to bits. His, His unsanctified imagination is running wild. And then God puts this plant right next to him because apparently Jonah was really poor at making this structure, and so it didn't actually cover him with shade, and so he needed more. And notice this is the only time that Jonah is glad. Also notice the repetition of the word exceedingly here. At the beginning of this chapter, Jonah is exceedingly displeased, and now he is exceedingly pleased. This says a lot about who he is, about his heart. And this dude must really love shade, right? 
Well, maybe there's something that's deeper. So a plant that grows that fast is obviously some kind of a miraculous plant to be able to cover him. So Jonah knows that this plant is supernatural, probably from God. If this is a supernatural plant, God was the one to plant it and grow it, and he thinks maybe it's working. Um, It does work. God does care about me. In fact, verse 6 says that the Lord put the plant there to save Jonah from his discomfort. And so... Now Jonah, he is comforted and he thinks, okay, God's going to start killing the Ninevites and God has approved of me sitting here and watching him do it. And he's put the plant there as sort of a, he's making amends with me. It's like an olive branch for me. Um, And so in, in this case, Jonah is loving his shade, but he is also loving his comfort and the possibility that God has approved of his ideas and is going to destroy Nineveh. But we all know it doesn't turn out that way. Look at verse seven. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. All right, let's stop here again. So <laughs> apparently the plant was not God's contribution to Jonah's little watch party outside of Nineveh. This plant dies, and so does Jonah's will to live again. And so then God repeats his question that he had before, but this time he includes the dead plant. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for this dead plant? And Jonah doesn't answer the first question, but he does answer this one. Yes, of course, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough here to die. Now, obviously, God didn't cave to Jonah's tactics the first time. And now Jonah here, he's doubling down, right? He's maybe gone a little too far. He starts spouting these crazy words. And from the outside looking in, it's like, man, come on, Jonah. Like, this is just a, a plant. It's not a big deal. But could it be that inside... Jonah has all of this war going on. It's it's a raging, deep-seated emotions. And perhaps his anger was a result of some of these layers and some of these things that kind of boiled over into dramatic statements. And so this is what God says to him in verse 10. And the Lord said, this is so good. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Wow. Do you get it, Jonah? You care more about this one little insignificant plant, a plant that has no soul, you did nothing for. The only thing you care about is what it is doing for you, giving you comfort, some man of God that you are. And so God gives Jonah this perfect little object lesson using this plant and the worm and the scorching wind. And he's saying, Jonah, you're so self-absorbed. You're angry. You're blind to what's actually happening. There are thousands of people in Nineveh that I created. They're made in my image, male and female. There are so many animals that I made living in this city. You think I want to destroy my created beings if there's a way to save them? No, God's going to choose to save over destroying. So this picture 
that we have here gives us such a window into the heart of God and also the heart of Jonah and maybe the heart of people. God here is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Jonah is the opposite. He is disobedient. He is rebellious. He is manipulative. And he struggles with idols. Jonah's maybe a little bit more like me than I'd like to admit. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we place above God. And so in chapter one, Jonah chooses to flee instead of obey God. He takes sort of an easy way out. And then he is sleeping comfortably in the ship when the storm comes. In chapter four, he sets up this shelter for his own comfort. God puts another plant to add to his comfort. And then he absolutely falls in love with the, with the plant and with the comfort that it provides. And so one way to tell if you have an idol is to see what happens when the idol is gone. And so what happens when the plant is removed? Jonah's devastated. Why? He's not in love with the plant. He's in love with what the plant does for him, gives him comfort. He's in love with his comfort. And he ends up loving his comfort more than he loves God. Another idol that God exposes is Jonah's bitterness. And bitterness happens when anger is sort of allowed to fester and sit um, and, and boil over for long periods of time. And uh, Anthony talked about the atrocities that took place in Nineveh. And so Jonah is upset with this people, with the Ninevites. And he knows that their time is coming from different prophecies, from his contemporary prophets. And he knows that this is Israel's enemy. And Jonah hates his enemy. He is bitter against his enemy. And he holds his bitterness more tightly than he holds his love for God or his love for people. His bitterness ends up becoming an idol. So notice how long it takes for God to get through to Jonah because idols don't fall easily, especially if it's bitterness or comfort. Those are two idols that are very difficult to defeat. So for comparison, notice how the sailors in chapter one, they turned, how quickly they turned to God. So there's, there's a storm, the sailors want to live, they pray to God, and then in verse 16, it says that the men feared God exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then the Ninevites, they're given even less information. There's just a proclamation, the Ninevites want to live, God saves them from disaster. All, all Jonah says is, yet 40 days and the Ninevites will be overthrown. He doesn't even mention the name of God or how they can save themselves. But the Ninevites turn to God through that. So both the, sa the sailors and the Ninevites are fairly quick when God exposes their darkness to turn to light because both of them wanted to live. And they both realized that they need to change. And both of them cried out to God. God hears them. They were saved. Now, let's look at the opposite of that, which is Jonah. Jonah is blinded to his need to change. He doesn't think he needs to change. You notice the difference? And so then his anger, his bitterness, his love of comfort, these are all dark corners of his heart that he doesn't maybe even realize need exposed to the light. And his heart is so dark that unlike the sailors and the Ninevites, Jonah asks for death. He wants to die. The sailors and Ninevites ask for life, but it's so dark inside of Jonah's heart that he asks for death. And God sends, he does these crazy things to get to Jonah. He sends a directive to go to Nineveh, and then he sends a great wind, and then he sends a giant fish. He sends a comforting plant. He sends a worm, a scorching east wind, all to expose the darkness that is inside of Jonah's heart, hopefully to get him to turn from his idols, to turn to the light and live. 
In Ephesians 2, or sorry, in Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, it says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So as we close, here are three applications from Jonah chapter four. And these are all kind of in the forms of prayers that you can pray and ask God in your time with the Lord. Number one, ask God to expose the dark corners of your heart. Ask God to expose the dark corners of your heart. Number two, ask God to reveal the underlying hurts, fears, and emotions that are causing your anger. And number three, ask God to help you love your enemy. So number one, ask God to expose the dark corners of your heart. Man, (laughs) when I was angry with Sunshine and with Sheila, and I raised my voice and I said dumb things, that should have been an indicator to me that something is wrong. Something is wrong with my heart. I was hanging on to some kind of darkness that I didn't want exposed. And we all know that sin thrives in darkness. And sin is going to do whatever it can to prevent itself from being exposed to the light. And so a lot of times, these deep and dark underlying heart issues are a little bit embarrassing to say out loud, or maybe a lot embarrassing to say out loud. And I'm certainly embarrassed to say that I was hanging on to a sinful fear of failure. But in my mind, either I was going to fail or the people around me were going to fail, but somehow something was going to fail. And how do you combat fears and failures and sin? You expose them to the light, to truth. And the truth is that I'm probably going to fail, but God won't. God's love for me is unfailing. Nothing is going to change that. And so what I might do is hit my fears with truth, with light. Something like Romans 8, 38 to 39, which will be on your screen. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I might fail, others around me might fail, but God's love is unfailing. Number two, ask God to reveal the underlying hurts, fears, and emotions that are causing your anger. Man, one of the reasons that I struggle with a fear of failure is that I have a scarlet past full of mistakes. But also other people have failed around me. They have wronged me. They have hurt me. They have caused me pain. And so sometimes I put up these walls to prevent future hurt from happening. And then my anger will slip out past my defenses, sometimes when I least expect it. And what do we do when God reveals underlying hurts, fears, and emotions that cause our anger? We ask him for healing. And oftentimes healing comes through forgiveness which leads us to number three. Number three, ask God to help you love your enemy. So once you expose your fears to the truth of God's word and then ask God to reveal the source of your anger so he can begin the healing process, you, you might discover that you're harboring bitterness against an enemy. A while back um, in a different place, uh, which sounds a little bit like a Star Wars movie intro, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> In a different season and space, 
there was an individual that failed me. They hurt me. Um, This person wronged me and my family, and they didn't apologize in the way that I thought they should. And so I held bitterness against this person for a long time, too long. I kept waiting for them kind of to discover the error of their ways, and it didn't happen. I drank a lot of poison, hoping it was going to affect them, and it never did. And then to add insult to injury, they did a different thing that hurt me and hurt my family twice. And so like Jonah, I felt this burning anger. And I remember driving home one day, and I'm yelling at God at this point. I had had given up on um, being calm. And I said, God, what am I supposed to do with this? And so after my tirade was done, I sat down in silence for a minute, pulled over, and this number popped in my head. 70 times 7. In Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Some versions say 77 times. The number doesn't matter. The point is, you can keep track of offenses up to a certain number, right? Like I can maybe keep track of 10 or so. But if it gets past that, I'm going to have to get out a spreadsheet and start really um, writing down all of the different wrongs. And notice that Peter says, how often should I forgive a brother or a sister in Christ? A person who hurts me, they might be an unbeliever. And if they are, then they might have a chance actually to become a believer in the future. Or that person who hurts me, they might be a believer, a brother or sister in Christ. And in my case, the person who hurt me was a believer, which makes it feel worse, right? Because how many of us have been hurt by other believers? I won't ask you to raise your hand. But I'm guessing most of us in the room or a lot of us have experienced another believer hurting us. And then how many of us turn those people into our enemies? And we can't stand the sight of them, right? Like whenever we think about them, we just want to punch them in the face, right? Whenever we, we are around them, we're just mad and we're hoping that they, they know that we're mad. We're drinking poison so that it affects them. And, and here's the thing. Like Jonah, we feel totally justified in our anger. These people deserve it, right? They should suffer for what they did. Nineveh should pay for what it did, what it's about to do. And so we effectively take the role of God and we start to administer our own sense of warped justice to these people who are our enemies and who are literally our brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's an old practice that I learned recently um, from a couple of uh, old theologians where you take a piece of paper and at the top you write down your enemy's name or maybe it's a group of people. And then on the left side, you write down all of the offenses, everything that they did. Maybe they were selfish, maybe they were rude, maybe they cheated you, whatever. And then on the right side, you start to do some self-inventory. And you write the ways, have I ever been selfish? Have I ever been rude? Have I ever cheated someone? And by the end of the exercise, you get to the bottom and you realize your enemy is a person. 
they're maybe a little more like you than you think. They're not a demon. They've been created by God. And, and this is sort of a stunning realization for those of us who have been hurt deeply by others. And it's this, God loves your enemy. God loves your enemy. He loves my enemy. He wants them to be saved and forgiven just like you and me. And you know what? Forgiveness is amazing when I receive it, right? Because I want to be forgiven, of course. But do I really want God to forgive my enemies? Do I do well to be angry with my enemy? There's another old theologian, he talks about the gift of the enemy. Sometimes our enemies expose darkness in us and in ways that our friends never could. Our friends usually overlook our faults, but in um, the presence of our enemies, they sort of reveal the state of our heart in ways that friends never could. There's a reason that Jesus tells us to love our enemies, because like it or not, our enemies end up having a role in shaping who we are. And how we respond to them, we could have a role in shaping who they are. Jesus says that our kindness actually is going to affect our enemies, like heaping burning coals on their heads. And also in Matthew 7, he says this. Jesus said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Friends, Jesus didn't die so that we could spend hours and hours picking the specks out of each other's eyes. Jesus doesn't die so that we could be filled with bitterness and hate and envy. Jesus didn't die so that we would absolutely fall in love with our own comfort and forget about our love of God or our love of people. Jesus dies for those specks. He died for all the specks in your enemy's eyes. He dies for the log in your own eye. He died to expose the darkness that sits inside of you and sits inside of me. And in a moment, we're going to have a chance to do a little business with God. We've got stations around the room to take communion. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the table is set for you. And so during this time, I want to encourage you to allow God to do his work. Do it in you and through you. Because if you're like me, we can be a little bit stubborn. And sometimes we try to push God away. And, and we, may, we might even be a little bit like Jonah, where when God asks, do you do well to be angry? We respond, absolutely. I am angry. I'm angry enough to die. And you know what? It's this person's fault and that person's fault and that person's fault. Maybe it's even your fault. Or we can make room for God to do whatever he wants to do. Maybe here we need to admit that we're filled with bitterness against someone. Maybe we need to admit that we have an underlying sin that's causing us to be angry at people around us. As a pastor, sometimes I avoid using the word anger and say I'm frustrated. I'm just frustrated. Really, I'm just angry at whatever the thing is. Um, so maybe we need to ask God to forgive us and heal us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he blessed it and he poured it out and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. 
take and drink in remembrance of me. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. What are you gonna remember about Jesus today? When you take the bread and you take the cup, what will you remember? I encourage you to remember that Jesus, he didn't seek revenge on his enemies while he was on the cross. He didn't say, just you wait, your day is coming. Instead, he tenderly prays, Father, forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing. And it sounds a little bit like what the father says to Jonah about the people of Nineveh. Should I not have compassion on these people who do not know their right hand from their left? Do you do well to be angry? So after I pray, please come forward and take communion if you're a believer in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for giving us chapter four of Jonah. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you for the, the instruction that it is for my own heart. God, knowing the ways that I have failed, but the ways that you haven't. God, thank you for the forgiveness that you abundantly have offered me so that I could abundantly offer it to others. Help me to do that. Help us to do that. God, as we, as we meet with you here, God, I pray that you'll speak to us. You'll show us the ways, the areas that maybe are a little dark inside of us that you want to expose to light. God, this is a scary thing, but this is such a necessary thing. God, please fill us up with light so we can experience your joy and your love and your hope in ways that we couldn't before when we had so much darkness in there. God, move here. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.